For those of you that are just joining us, uh, we've been in this glorious book. You'll notice, do we have a slide up there? <laughs> yeah, that slide. You'll notice that we've got a picture of Mount Everest there. Uh, what we're looking at is, metaphorically speaking, if you look at the entire New Testament, uh, you could liken that to the Himalayas. It wasn't until the, the British went and mapped the Indian subcontinent that they discovered that the Himalayas were actually taller than the Andes. With that in mind, looking at the Bible, the New Testament, the book of Romans is like the Himalayas. Chapter 8 in the book of Romans can be likened to Everest, uh, the ceiling of the world, as that mountain is called, because uh, it has got, it is just packed with glorious information on what our faith is about, on what walking with the Lord is about, what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is about, what sanctification is about. I mean, it just goes on and on. And so as we've been studying this, I purposely slowed down the study through Romans. We're going verse by verse through the book. Uh, and we're looking at, at taking a number of hikes up the mountain. Uh, we've been uh, in this for, oh, I don't know, almost two months now, and, and we're, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> if, if those of you that know me know that I sometimes don't get in a big hurry, because I just want to mine God's word. I want for us to be able to be nourished by this, this word of God that we have. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at future glory. What does that mean? I mean, that's a really churchy sounding term, future glory. My prayer is by the time that we're finished here this morning, you'll have a lot better grasp on it and that you'll have a, a, a much deeper understanding of why that is critical. Understanding the fact that future glory is out in front of all of us and how our lives really are shaped by that reality. A couple of studies back, three weeks ago, we had a guest speaker, a couple of guest speakers last week. We looked at uh, understanding culture and, and all of the things that are being <laughs> thrown at us these days. But a couple of studies back, uh, we looked at what it is to be sons and daughters of God here in Romans chapter 8. Uh, Paul does a beautiful uh, exposition there about what it is to be a child of God. Uh, we ended that study with a question from Romans 8, 17. In, in verse 17, uh, which is actually before the text we're going to look at this morning, he says, and if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, uh, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So the question is, is why in verse 17 does the apostle tie the blessings of being God's child and the blessing of future glory together with Christ, was suffering. And we looked at that. Two weeks ago, we looked at the answer to that question uh, in verse 18 and following. But truly, as we looked at suffering as a child of God, we looked at the fact that we will suffer. It's part of this life. It's also part of being a child of God because there is a distinct kind of suffering that comes as you're walking with the Lord, and you're, you're really walking against the, the current of this world. And, and, and if we don't experience a degree of suffering in that respect, perhaps we need to check and see how strongly we're walking, how strongly we're, we're moving forward. Because that's part of this life. It's part of the Christian life. Jesus suffered. We suffer. 
And the point in that, folks, is that as we understand that being his child includes suffering, that, that if we're not confident of the reality, and, and we really looked at this two weeks in our last study, when trials come, when difficulties come, when challenges come, if we're not confident in the fact that we are his child, we're going to struggle. We're going to, we're going to have a, an increased amount of difficulty in our lives because folks, we don't serve an idea. We serve a person. We don't serve a creed. We serve a loving father. We don't serve a church. We serve a resurrected, a living Lord. And as we walk in that reality, we gain perspective as we walk by faith here now. And, and the point in all of that is, we, if, folks, you don't need me to tell you, we can't see God physically. He's not physically man. And if you're seeing God physically, probably you should talk to me after the service. Um, I would really like to talk to you. But and we can't hear him audibly. That's just not part of it. That's not part of this walk of faith that he has appointed us to. As a result, we can begin to assume in times of trouble that he's not there. We can begin to question whether or not he's listening to our prayers. Uh, Even worse, we could begin to assume that God just flat doesn't care. Dangerous ground. You've got to understand him as your father. Because that is all cleared up as we understand that reality. Because by faith we do see him working in our circumstances. By faith we do hear him by his spirit, through his word. It's all about perspective. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, the Apostle Paul, the same guy that wrote this in Romans, has some interesting things to say uh, about this suffering thing in light of eternity, in light of the kingdom of God. And in verse 17, he says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, hold it a second. (laughs) I talked last time about, I went down the list (laughs) that he talks about here in this book in 2 Corinthians about the things that the apostle Paul suffered. And I would submit to you, he suffered way more. If we had a checklist, he went through way, (laughs) this guy went through tremendous suffering And he calls it a momentary light affliction. That's the perspective that we're talking about. He says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It's that walking by sight versus walking by faith thing that all of us have to deal with. And as we become more disciplined in this, we begin to look more and more at God's hand and the details of our lives. We see that not as circumstance or coincidence. We see that it is him actively moving through the details, through the circumstances, through the hardship, through the suffering, through the blessings. We see his hand in our lives and we see it through the lens of being his child. We see it through being an heir of God, a joint heir, a co-heirs with Christ. And when we talk about heirs, understand that when the Bible talks about us being heirs, what he's saying is you're going to inherit something. All right? And so, again, we could look at that and just pass right by it. But what do we inherit? Life. 
I mean, that's what God deals in. That's the currency of heaven, life. The things that are seen, he says here in 2 Corinthians, are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. So as we walk, as we do business in this world, we understand that we are a peculiar people. We are set apart. We do think about things and we look at life in a completely different way. We have a different worldview. It's what we talked about last week. That there's a worldview that shapes our thinking as Christians, as children of the King. As we look at this, as we look at what walking by faith is, I'm reminded of Hebrews 11.1, 1, that great passage. It gives us a literal definition of faith. He says, faith is a substance of things hoped for. We're going to be talking about hope quite a bit this morning. It's the evidence of things not, not seen. It's that unseen world. So as we get into the text this morning, we're going to broaden our discussion on suffering uh, from Christian suffering, which is what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, to now looking at human suffering and why. Because it, the Bible tells us the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. All of us suffer. We have the advantage of having a divine perspective on suffering. And, and, and that's what Paul unpacks here for us. And as we read verses 18 to 25 together, I want you to notice the, 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 the use of the conjunction for. You guys, you know what a conjunction is? It hooks thoughts together. I remember when I, my kids were growing up, I'd park in front of the television. They'd have this song, Conjunction Junction, What's My Function? You guys remember that? Some of you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, that was how I learned what a conjunction is. But anyway, the word for here in this passage, I want you to pay attention to it. It's different from therefore because therefore says, what's it there for? Therefore looks at what has just been said. The word for here is saying, it's not talking about what's just been said in the sense of it's putting something different together with this. The word for is used to build. And so what Paul's doing here uh, is he's connecting his thoughts. This word's function connects Paul's thoughts as far as, as he illustrates point by point, principle one principle upon another, present suffering and future glory. So I'm going to read through it and then we'll come back and we'll take a look at it. He says four, it, it begins verse 18 with four. What he's doing is connecting to verse 17, that we as God's family will suffer. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation uh, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. There's a lot there. Let's take a look at it. As I mentioned, he uses the word for five times in just this short passage because he's he's building a case. He's building not an argument to argue with somebody, but he's, he's putting together a, a very sequential 
statement here that forms a whole idea. Interesting, Paul does this a lot. I've mentioned before that if you back up for context, you back up to chapter 1, verse 1, regardless of where you're at in the book of Romans. But he uses the word because 25 times in this book. He uses the word therefore in the book of Romans 34 times because he is putting this together to form a composite picture of what it is to belong to Christ. Great benefit for us. So in verse 18, where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Folks, you don't need me to tell you that life is full of enormous suffering. I know some of you in this room. I know your story. Some of you. Great suffering. I know in my own life, periods of suffering. So that's a given. With that in mind, what he's saying is that the suffering of this present time, it's not even worthy to be compared. It doesn't even show up compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's exciting. That gets me fired up because I understand that it's not just this moment that counts. I want you to, too, to understand that he's not minimizing pain and suffering when he says that it's, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't compare with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. He's actually validating that. He acknowledges it, he's, but he's revealing it with that eternal perspective. The same one we looked at in 2 Corinthians where he said, look, the things that, that are seen, those are temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. And he's talking about that here. He's talking about the fact that when we suffer, it's part of this life. And yes, it's significant. Frankly, it just flat hurts at times. And we all go through it. So he's not minimizing it. But he's saying that that we need to have an eternal perspective in it if we want to do well in the midst of suffering. And I know that sounds antithetical, but that's just what he's talking about here. Notice in verse 18 that Paul pivots. He goes from the present to what lies ahead for a child of God. What he's talking about is future glory. The sufferings of this present time, present, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be future revealed in us. This is the inheritance that he speaks about in verse 17. He's answering his own statement there and saying, look, you're, you will suffer, but take courage. It, 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 even if it's really, really, really bad, what's coming is so good that, that it, it would just absolutely blow your mind. Now, it's this point that Paul builds on as we move through the text, as we go on here. In verse 19, he says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. So what Paul does here, it's interesting the way he does this. He's not saying that the, that, that the creation has taken on some kind of corporate personality, like, you know, it's a big ooze or something like that. But he's personifying it so that he can make a point. He says the the expectation of the creation eagerly waits. When he talks about earnest expectation here, in, in the original, that's one word. And what it means is a strained or a tense expectancy. So he's saying there is a strained and tense expectancy of the creation. There, there's something going on there. There's a tension there. When he says it eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, that, what that means, and again, this is, it's a strong word. It doesn't translate well into English. 
I mean, this is a good translation, but the sense and, and, and the tense of this word is it's a continual tense that uh, it, it's an active waiting. And I know that sounds like, it sounds contradictory. It's like, well, I'm waiting or I'm active. No, <laughs> both can be true at the same time. I was thinking about my granddaughters. Uh, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, uh, I flew down to Northern California, had a, a few days with uh, three very adorable granddaughters. And they have an adorable new puppy named Bailey, a golden retriever, really cute little dog. <laughs> and while I was there, I was sitting on the couch, and, and one of them got the bag of dog treats. And Bailey didn't even have to know what was in it. But all of a sudden, that dog, I mean, perked up, and it was like, oh, yeah, I know what's coming. Oh, yeah, I know what's about to happen next. It hadn't happened. And they got that dog to do all kinds of crazy things waiting for that treat. I mean, you've been there. You've done that. In the period of time from the the dog recognized that there is something there for me, from that until the dog actually realized having a treat in his mouth, there was definitely a tense or an expectant waiting as he or she is a little female puppy was like, prancing around and, and, okay, what do you want me to do next? I really want what you've got. It was a strain. It was a tense expectancy. It was an act of waiting. She knows it's coming. And she was totally focused on what's coming. In, in an earthly sense, that's the idea of what he's saying here. We live in a strained expectancy in a fallen world. We know. We look forward. We actively wait by faith. But we're not talking about a dog with a bone. We're talking about the revealing of the sons of God. And it's you and I. That's what he's talking about. It's not just we are hanging out waiting. We are actively waiting. We are looking for the fulfillment of this. And I'll tell you what, as I, as I get older, uh, now 27, you know, but as I get older, I, I, uh, that that expectancy, that tension, that waiting just seems to increase. It's like, come, Lord Jesus. I, you know what? I, I just, I, yeah, I, I, you've blessed me with a, a good life and a, a good wife and all of that. And yet that pales. Even the good stuff pales in comparison to the thought of looking right into Jesus's eye as I come into his presence for the very first time. What a remarkable moment that will be for each one of us. So what Paul, he, you know, he's already made it clear that those who are in Christ are the sons of God. I, I want to talk about this for a minute because there's a popular heresy out there <laughs> in, in sort of reinterpreting this verse. And, and it's the, the sons of God, it's not saying that creation is waiting for a particular group of super spiritual Christians to show up, to be revealed in, in some incredibly powerful fashion. I, you... <laughs> I read a lot of stuff as I study. And, and I was kind of shocked at how often people go down that road. And I want to tell you something. There is nothing to support that fantasy. He's talking about us. He, he's just finished saying, you are children of God. And now he's saying that the creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. He's not talking about some abstract group. Fun as that might be to think about. It's No, he's talking about us. We accept sonship and being, as being about ourselves, he's talking about us. And 
about each other. That as we approach the, the thought of being his son, being his daughter, we approach it by faith. And a moment is coming for each one of us when those in Christ will be glorified and it will become impossible to deny that we have been and we are God's children. Right now, you walk down the street, you look just like everybody else. You stand in the grocery store line, you don't know if that person next to you is a child of God or not. Then, no, it'll be very clear. It'll be very clear because it will have been revealed. That's what he's getting at here. He's describing a future time when God will, he will just set all things right. And he tells us that, that all creation, the natural world, that's what he means when he says creation, it's the natural realm, that it eagerly looks forward to the moment when all of this is wrapped up. Because folks, one of the things that I've told people many times over the years, especially when they're dealing with really difficult circumstances, is you've got to remember it will not always be like this. Our lives are fluid. They're in motion. They're not static. And if I've got depressing circumstances right now, I can take great courage, especially knowing that I'm a child of the king. It's not going to always be this way. Those pressures may be coming to bear in my life because God wants to work something. He wants to work an eternal weight of glory, as we're seeing here. He may be doing something I have no concept of. Circumstances in my life presently, I have no idea what he's doing, but I know he's good. And when I don't know what's going on in my life, I fall back on what I do know. And I do know that Jesus is merciful. I do know that God is gracious. I do know that he loves me beyond anything I could measure it with. I know that he's good and that he has good things in mind for me. We'll look at that next week as we get into Romans 8.28, where we talk about him working all these things together for good. The creation in verse 20, he says, for the creation... Uh, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. There's that word. So the creation eagerly waits because it was subjected to futility on account of man's sin. It, it comes down to that. The creation will benefit from the ultimate redemption of man. You know, we think about that and we can get it backwards. We can think, well, man will benefit with the redemption of creation. No, no, no. Creation fell because man fell. Creation has fallen because man has fallen. And, and, and when man is ultimately redeemed, guess what? Creation's lifted out of that. We've got to get it right. We can't look through the wrong end of the telescope because then we end up with spiritual myopia. It doesn't work. Well, what he's saying here is that the creation will benefit from our ultimate redemption. And now he links together suffering as a child of God and suffering in a fallen world. The creation was subjected to futility. Now, when he speaks of the creation being subjected to futility, the Greek word for futility is metiotes. You don't have to remember that, but do remember that it's a strong term, and there is a strong implication behind that word. What it implies is something which is warped, perverse, sickly, Weak and false. You don't need me to tell you to look around. Look at what's going on in our world. And it's a result of sin. It's a result of the fall. It goes all the way back to the opening pages of Genesis. In Genesis 3, God tells Adam, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. What he's saying is, not only Adam are you cursed, not only Eve are you cursed, not only serpent are you cursed, but I'm cursing the very ground that you walk on. I'm cursing creation. When Adam sinned, his transgression affected not only mankind, but all of creation. So Paul's explaining that creation was subjected to metiotes, resulting in a world that's warped and perverse and sickly and weak and false. That's the world we live in. And, and you know, <laughs> I, I've told you guys before, I have to be careful at this point of how much news I take. I'm a news junkie. I just fully admit it. I love checking out and seeing what's going on in the world. And I, I found some fairly reliable websites because a lot of what is passed off as news isn't, and I'm not going to go there. But the point is, is that I get to a point where I take in just, I, if I take in so much, I start having, I start losing my peace for one thing, because I get more, more focused on what's going on in the world than on the Lord. And as I start to lose my peace, I start to think, oh, you know, this is just, it becomes burdensome. That's not God's will. And so I, I, I find myself doing more headlines <laughs> than stories. And, I, and it's not that I don't want to be informed. I, I believe it's a responsible thing to be informed. But I've got to keep my perspective. I've got to realize that this world isn't all there is. I've got to realize that this is a fallen planet. And it's just acting really fallen. I don't have to. I don't have to be a part of that. The point in all of that. He says he didn't, he didn't subject it by choice. Creation didn't curse itself. He was cursed by the decree of God because of the disobedience of the first man. We looked at that with Adam, with the first head of the human race. We looked at it in Romans chapter 5. Uh, we'll look at it here for a moment. Where by one man, sin came into the world. And by one man, sin was dealt with once for all. Uh, the point in all that is the warped and struggling existence that has come about and that came about when God cursed all of creation is in response to human sin. In Romans 5.12, the Apostle Paul says, through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin. And thus death, death spread to all men. Thankfully, it doesn't end there. I mean, if that was the end of the story, we could just walk out of here depressed. That's it. Spread to all men. Done. No, but he tells us at the end of verse 20 that creation was subjected to futility in hope. Understand that word, hope. He says it wasn't just subjected to futility. That's not the end of the story. And that hope is only found in Jesus Christ. Why do you, why do I know that? Romans 5.17, a few verses later, he says, For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign through in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So by one man, sin came into the world. By one man and by his work, the finished work at the cross, sin was dealt with permanently. So here's the question. <laughs> Since when Jesus went to the cross, he died for the sins of humanity. And, and if you're a Christian here this morning, understand that. If you're not, I would advise you to take it by faith because that is the essence of the gospel. Jesus died for us. He died to free us from the curse, from that curse we're looking at. 
We just read about it in Romans. So the question is, with that in mind, why didn't he liberate the earth from the curse then? And I think that it's a, it's a question worth asking. Why didn't, when he went to the cross, when, when the veil was torn, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago, from the top down, signifying now that man has full, open access to God, why didn't he just take care of it then and renew the earth to a sinless state then? A couple of things. First of all, patience. God's patient. In Second Peter 3, verses 8 and 9, Peter says, But beloved, don't forget this one thing, that with the Lord uh, one day is as a thousand years, and a th- thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack confer- concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering, patient towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He knows that not all will, but God is patiently waiting to end this age. When that last Gentile receives Christ into their heart, I'll tell you what, things are going to kick into high gear, and that could happen any moment. Live expectantly. That's what he says in his word. Now, when he talks about a day is a thousand years, I want to make one point about that. He's not saying that that's how God measures time. He's using it as an example. I mean, we live on a little rock that spins in circles, <laughs> that circles a star, and, 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 you know, it takes us a year. We measure it as a year. But we, you know, we, we do a, a day as, as, as one circular rotation of this little rock called the earth. And when God, who owns the entire universe, when he looks at that, what all that Peter is trying to say is, look, God does, he's not measuring time like you do. A day is like a thousand years to him. A thousand years is like a day. He's saying he doesn't operate in the same realm as you. Time is part of his creation. He's outside of it. And so when we look at, well, why didn't God wrap it up then? It's a long time for us. It's been 2,000 years. But for him... It's part of his perfect plan. He's being patient towards us that none would perish. It says, will that all come to repentance. We know that not all will, but that's where human choice comes into the equation. We'll talk about that next week when we look at free will and predestiny. That can be a hot issue for people, but I think that God's will or God's word uh, presents a, a great balance in that. So he's awaiting the fullness of the, we call it the fullness of the Gentiles. And, and at that point, he will wrap it up. Secondly, from the moment that God cursed humanity and the creation itself, he set about the work of redemption. From that moment, have you ever thought about that? You look at the whole Bible. All right, you got Genesis 1, you know, the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the same Holy Spirit we're looking at here. You know, he, and he goes into that, and it, that it wasn't good, you know, that, that he created these things, and he created, 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 creates man. It's not good that man should be alone and creates woman, and then what a mess. From that point in Genesis 3, three chapters in to the Bible, yeah, well, and it wasn't saying what a mess with women. Lee, I see you cracking up right there. But... After they fell, I mean, it didn't take long for man to just totally screw the whole thing up. The entire rest of the Bible is what we call redemptive history. The entire rest of the Bible is God's work of putting man back into alignment with him so he doesn't die. So he subjected this earth to futility, but he did it in hope because from the very beginning, from the moment that man fell, He was working to to redeem man. He was working to bring man back into relationship with him. Why? 
because he loves us. It's not because he's obligated. It's because he has a great love for you that you perhaps need to take a look at because it's a love you'll never fully understand this side of heaven, but is a fantastic, powerful strength, strong love. I, I, I start getting speechless, and it's hard for a preacher to do, but I do when I think about the love of God poured out in our hearts. But that's what it means that he subjected the creation to futility in hope. Time's coming. We don't look at the things which are seen because if we look at the things which are seen, <laughs> I'll guarantee you're going to get depressed. But we look at the things that are not seen. We look at the things that are put forth in God's word. We look at the whole sphere of things in the kingdom of God and the fact that he is going to wrap it up. Until then, take courage. We live in between the already and the not yet. Folks, if you don't see your life as tucked into the pages of scripture, because we see a whole body of information, things that have already taken place. And then if you're looking at the prophetic word, you see that there's a whole bunch of things that have not yet taken place. That's where we live. That's where we live. That's why we look at future hope. Because this life can be depressing. And you might be having a great time. And if that's the case, praise God. I'm not trying to be a bummer here. But I am saying that life is tough at times. We suffer at times. We go through things. And yet at the end of all of that, we can boldly say, God is good. God loves me with an everlasting and eternal love. So verse 20 again, for the creation was subjected to futility, not in, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because, verse 21, because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. You know, as I look at this, he's saying, again, he's going, he's shooting off into the future here. He's saying the creation will be delivered from the bondage of corruption. And that we're going to have a part in that. As you look at the book of Revelation, I'm just going to, I'm going to give you 10 chapters, 11 chapters in Revelation. <laughs> Very short <laughs> summary. In Revelation chapters 6 through 16, there are some powerful, powerful things happening. We see the wrath of God being poured out on the creation, on the earth. Through, he starts with seven seal judgments when Jesus is the one that's found worthy to, to take the scroll, the title deed to the earth, and he begins to pull off the seals. There's seven seals on this scroll. God's wrath begins to be poured out. And each one of those seals, as he goes, they increase in intensity. And it goes from the seals. The last seal introduces the first trumpet judgment. And so we look at seven trumpet judgments there where the wrath of God is continuing to be poured out in increasing measure. And that folds into seven bowl judgments there in Revelation chapter 16, where each is the intensity. And by this point, I'll tell you what, it is horrible. Through these judgments, God's purging the creation from sin. It won't always look like this. It won't always be a fallen world. Once that's accomplished... There will be a new earth uh, the, the, that righteousness dwells in the earth. Revelation 26, 20 verse 6, he says, Blessed and holy is he who has a part in the first resurrection. In other words, you're not going to say stay dead. 
over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, talking about us, and shall reign with him for a thousand years. That's, that's a reference to the millennial reign of Christ, that what will happen, and I expect it any day, there is nothing that has to, that foreshadows the rapture of the church, the church being taken up to meet with the Lord in the air. That could happen any moment. We see things that are signs of the second coming. If you look in Matthew 24, he's talking about the second coming of Christ, but those things cast a long shadow through the, the great tribulation and into our day. And so we look forward to being caught up with the Lord if unless we die and we go to be with him that way, because at that point, we're looking at future glory as well. Isaiah chapter 11 gives a prophetic picture of what this earth will look like after he has purged it from sin. In Isaiah eleven six, it says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. That's just a really brief picture, very descriptive, but a really brief picture of what the earth will look like, what this creation will look like, like when sin is dealt with permanently. I'll tell you what, we live on a corrupt planet. We suffer now. The earth suffers now. We, we, we live in a creation that's hostile towards God now. But then, until then, we persevere in hope. We eagerly wait. We actively wait. We know what's coming. We focus on what's ahead. And it shapes our lives now. It shapes the way that we interact with the circumstances in our lives now. Future hope. Critically important gain. Verse 22, for we know, he says, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. I want you to understand something about hope. This is not a hope so hope. When you think about the word hope, it means, well, maybe it'll happen. I hope it'll happen. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You know, that's not what is being said. That's not the kind of hope that we look at as Christians. This is not a hope so hope. This is a no so hope. Our hope is in the sturdy reality of what's to come. If you believe that God's word is truly God's speech to human kind, that if you believe that this thing, this Bible is God's word to us, that it's inspired all of it. If you believe that this is, this is truth, ultimate truth. If it was good enough for Jesus, he said in the garden or, or when he prayed in his high, high priestly prayer, he said, your word is truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. If you believe that, you can believe this. This life isn't it. Important the way we live it, of course. Ultimate reality? No, not at all. We know that the whole creation groans and labors. We live in a sighing, sobbing, suffering world. That's the reality of it. There are hurting people out there. And, And as things get worse, should they get worse? And there's a lot of evidence that they will. We have answers. I don't have my own answers. I have answers from God's word. 
I can encourage people and many, many, many times over the years have said, you know what? I can't address your circumstances. I don't own them. They're your circumstances. But I can, by the word of God, show you how to live well within them. That's a promise from God's word. He says the whole creation groans, suffers pain like that of childbirth. And I want you to know childbirth is a great metaphor to use here. So, and ladies, take I'm, I'm going to take your word for it that labor is tough. <laughs> Look at Emily here, she had a baby a couple of weeks ago. Labor is tough, huh? Yeah. <laughs> labor is tough. But you know two things if you're in labor. And you can raise your hand and tell me if I'm wrong. You know what? It's not going to always be like this. You know that you're going to be in labor for a while. But it's going to, it has a, it's a finite thing. It's going to end. You also know there's a huge payoff. I'm looking at baby John here in dad's arms. Huge payoff at the end of it. That's the metaphor he's using. And that's his point. Living on this earth brings suffering. And the creation itself groans like in childbirth. We know there's a huge payoff at the end of it. No more death. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. I can't tell you how much I look forward to that day. You know, there's a saying in in 12-step programs. (laughs) I've not been in one. I just want to let you know. Uh, But there's a saying there. It says, the only way out is through. (laughs) The only way out of this life is through this life. However, that's true. We don't go through it alone. This is not something that I just have to suck it up and get through because I'm going to do it. I'm going to hang. I'm just going to do it. No. Verse 23. He says, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. He's saying, you're not going through it alone. You have the spirit of God. If you belong to Christ, you have the spirit of God living within you guiding you, speaking to you, directing the course of your life, convicting you for sin, and and just empowering your life. In the Old Testament, the first fruits, it was a feast. It was actually, it was a spring feast called first fruits. And as Paul wrote this, those that were Jewish at the church in Rome would would have locked into this. First fruits was a promise of the harvest to come. And what it was is it symbolized God's ownership of all the harvest, even though they had just the first fruits. And that symbol was saying, look, here's the first fruits. This is spring. This is, these are the seeds that we're putting out. And the whole harvest, Lord, it belongs to you. That's how the, that's the symbolism there. The Holy Spirit himself is our first fruits. Powerful metaphor here. Just as that first handful of ripened grain symbolizes the guarantee of God's being, that you and I, we're God's own possession. We are his first fruits. The the Holy Spirit is the first fruits for us. The Holy Spirit is a pledge and a guarantee that our full inheritance, future glory, being redeemed with the resurrected, glorified bodies. That's a promise for us. We're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. That belongs to us. So interestingly, in verse 15 here, we're not going to go back to it, but Paul states, we have received the spirit of adoption. We looked at that a few weeks back. Here he says, we are eagerly waiting for the adoption. So how do you reconcile that? 
One says we've already got it. The other says we're waiting for it. Well, again, going back to looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives, we already have the Spirit within ourselves as the first installment of future glory. But we don't yet have these promises in their fullness. We expectantly wait. There's that active waiting for their final manifestation. We're living between the already and the not yet. It's saying we have the Holy Spirit as a down payment on heaven until we get to heaven. The Holy Spirit manifests in us the presence of God here and now. That's part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Until we come into the very presence of God then and there. So yes, we already have the Holy Spirit. We already have this adoption, this inheritance, and we are going to inherit. We have the first fruits. The complete release of our suffering and the fullness of the glory that will be ours is a future certainty. Folks, you got to understand that. By faith, appropriate that truth. It's certain. It's not hope so. It's no so. But for now, we groan. We're human. All of us are broken in ways. We deal with this flesh, talked about that, this corpse that we haul around. We deal with a fallen world that's coming up with crazier things every day. We live in a world that is against God. We groan. We yearn for the eternal transformation of these earthly bodies. That's what he's talking about here. We yearn for the fact that we will put off uh, that this mortal will put on immortality. We will put off the old man and put on the new man permanently. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through the glass, the mirror dimly, but then face to face, we will know as we're now known. In the meantime, we groan. We struggle at times. And this is part of life. And yet that's not the end of it. Because I'll tell you what, your big brother came and rescued you and he wants you to lean on him. And that's a reality. The ever-present help in time of need that the Spirit of God brings as we're related to Christ. Although we have the first fruits of the Spirit guaranteeing our eventual deliverance, we still groan for and long for that day of glory. It's It's there. Verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not seen, or hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? He's saying, by virtue of the fact that you're suffering, by the virtue of the fact that you're going through things, you need to have hope and you appropriate that by faith because it's not what you see, it's what you don't see. He writes that the, uh, that, that the hope of resurrection, that of being a child of God is it's the same hope that brought us to faith in Christ to begin with. We exercised faith. We chose to believe. We chose to appropriate the truths of God's word, to appropriate the power of the gospel in our lives permanently and personally. That's the same hope that we look forward to when we put it in that perspective, the same faith that comes into play in trusting God for what's ahead. We're not home yet, but this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. Our hope is certain, but it hasn't materialized. We can't see it. If we could, Paul says, that wouldn't be hope. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we don't see, 
We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Here's the bottom line. Through faith in the finished work of Christ at Calvary, we're God's beloved children adopted into his family. True. That we're children of God doesn't exempt us from suffering. True. Actually, we'll suffer because we're his children. And also because we live on a world that has been, due to, the, due to sin, it's been cursed, subjected to futility, or things that are warped, perverse, sickly, weak, false, are commonplace. Yet we live our lives in view of the fact that these things are not the end of it, because we have our eyes on home and on the future glory that awaits each one of us if, you, if your life belongs to Christ. It's in these things, it's with this understanding that we persevere, that we hang in through the times that are tough, that we hang in when we know that it just plain hurts. And if you're not in that place this morning, please put this in your spiritual bank account, draw it out when you are hurting. Because all of us go through periods and times of suffering. We can take great courage from the fact that he's got this. We can confidently look forward to a world without evil, without suffering, without death, where we will actually live on the same planet as God. He promises to wipe every tear from our eyes forever. Do you walk in the reality of these things? Honest question. If so, praise God. If not, you can become a child of God today. Perhaps you're here. Perhaps you're going to a Christian college. Perhaps the Spirit of God is knocking on the door of your heart and saying, I want to take you as my child. I want to take you deep with me. I want to reveal myself to you. And the only thing I require of you is to simply acknowledge that this life isn't it. And I know for me, I came to a point of saying many years ago, God, I I just don't know how to manage. I don't know how to, I don't know how to navigate in this life. I need you. I, I need your presence. I need your help. He says, turn from the old life. Ask him to forgive you for your sins because that's what separates you from him. He died for that. Ask him to come in to fill you afresh. Perhaps you're a Christian and you've been struggling. The Bible tells us his mercies are new every morning. You don't have to walk around with a dark cloud of condemnation over your head. You can roll it onto him this morning. You can ask him for a fresh filling of his Holy Spirit and he will do it because he loves you. He loves me with a love that is so powerful that we can only grasp. But that's enough.